great stick to wrestling is about to hit its stride. Welcome to the 100th edition of Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. There are some good wrestling podcasts out there. We know that. But are they wicked good? Well, I'll tell you what. Let's ask George Thorogood what he thinks. No, no, no. I'm not going to argue with a Delaware destroyer. Follow us on Facebook. We have our own Facebook page. We're doing a 1982 Crockett Cup fantasy tournament. Ric Flair's 25 best opponents, in my opinion. We have daily classic wrestling results. Uh, Sean weighs in with his video links. Follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has two guys hitting each other with chairs. And... I want to bring on our convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you holding up? I'm doing great, and let's get right to the guest, because he's way more important than me today. (laughs) This is our 100th show, and in celebration, uh, we do have a very special guest. He is a lifelong wrestling fan, a former writer for the Wrestling Forum newsletter. Perhaps importantly, there's only one wicked good wrestling podcast, There's only one wicked good NBA team, and it's the Boston Celtics. May I introduce our guest, the voice of the Boston Celtics, Mr. Sean Grandy. Sean, thank you for joining us on our 100th episode. I got to tell you, it's been a long time since Wrestling Forum made an appearance in my sort of Wikipedia intro (laughs) anywhere. (laughs) It's been about 30-something years. It's been a long time. I mean, and that's kind of how... You got your foot in the door wrestling-wise. I mean, you know, a lot of people got that newsletter, so a lot of people were, were reading your stuff. You know, it's really funny. I, I reached a point, I was very young. I was like 15 when I was doing that. And I got to the point where a lot of us, I think, got in the, in the kayfabe days, where you are a fan as a kid, and then you get to 13, 14 years old, and you sort of either outgrow it, or what happened to me was when I learned – that there was a, a something called the Wrestling Observer, and I learned all the backstage stuff, and I le- I became I went the other way, and I became more interested when I learned how it really worked than when I was just a ten year old kid, you know, cheering for Bob Backlund. I became more interested in that, and that's what sort of you know carried on to this day. And Wrestling Forum was a, uh, you know, there were there were a lot of newsletters at that time. I mean, think about how ancient does this sound now. Like oh, yeah. doing a newsletter and mailing it out. Like try to explain that. There's certain things I won't even try to explain to my son, like about, you know, phones that attach to the wall and, you know, all the stuff from back then. But yeah, newsletters are pretty crazy. It's, it's, every day now you vote in a Twitter poll, right? And back then we had a tournament and at Wrestling Forum in 1986 or 1987 where you'd vote for who you'd want to win in a fantasy matchup. And you mailed the ballots to me and I would add them up every month. I mean, as I was trying to explain to my son about doing uh, fantasy baseball stats out of the USA Today yesterday, and he was just like turning his head sideways, like, uh, okay, I get it. I'm old. Oh, yeah, and you add them up by hand, and then you hand yeah. mail them to your friends. Yeah, yeah. It, it was insane. I mean, I miss those old phones because I miss the thrill of getting into an argument with your girlfriend and physically slamming that thing down. Slamming the phone down. Yeah, you can't. You just like beep. Yeah, you can't. It's just not the same thing emotionally. And the 342-foot cord that you could take into seven rooms. Right. And then when that got tangled, the the idea, you know, twirling it to untangle it and all that. But the the nice thing for people of our age is that, you know, Facebook now, there's all these different – you can go and live in that world if you want. And you can find these sites that have pictures of Etch-A-Sketches and, you know, Bomb Pops and all the – like, these are different things we grew up with. And you can immerse yourself now in your own little, you know, whatever your comfort world was. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what wrestling, a lot of wrestling is for me. It's nostalgia. I mean, if I watch a WWF, you know, DVD from 1981, it, it, it's like a little time machine. Oh, I, I don't think there's any question. So much of this stuff is available now. When I first got, I think when I was 12 or, you know, when we finally got a VCR, this is a big deal, like in yeah. 1983. And it was my, I felt it was like my job to record all of the Madison Square Garden shows because they had to be archived. You know, if this is my job, I have to make sure that, and now everything obviously is available at the push of a button 
anywhere. But back then you were literally videotaping everything you could because it was like the only way you'd ever see it again. Now you nostalgia, nostalgia itself is a lost art. Uh, that's a concern for me. I have for my son and this is that nostalgia is going to be a lost art because my son, there were 10,000 pictures of my son taken by the time he was three. Yeah. But if there's no like looking back and looking at old photo albums and the concept of nostalgia is, oh yeah, I remember that. I haven't seen that in 20 years, but that isn't going to exist anymore if you, when you can see everything anytime you want. That is an excellent point. I never thought of that before. I just want to make everyone aware that I have two guys on that I'm speaking with, both Sean's S-E-A-N, last name begins with G, and they both went to B-U. You guys are like twins. There you go. And I work, you know, with the Celtics, we have, uh, you can imagine, we have two guys with the Celtics. And imagine between email and phone calls and who you're trying to reach. We literally, only the Boston Celtics could this happen. There were two guys named Sean Sullivan <laughs> who worked for the Boston Celtics in the front office. So, yeah, deal with that a lot. And I, it's funny because a lot of people in New England, wherever you're listening to this, you know, we're, we're sort of known as Grandy and Max. And that started because when I came back from the Timberwolves and I came back to Boston in 2001, we only had, there were only three employees of the radio station. There was myself, Cedric Maxwell, who I understand is some people idolized as a kid. I never knew that. And the then there was, yeah, yeah Grace, quite something. <laughs> and almost would have been, obviously was in my wedding. Would have been the best man if my son hadn't taken that spot. And, but Sean McDonough was the third. And so there were only three people that worked there. And so we couldn't have two. And then I kind of lost my first name because of that. But yeah, it's a pretty common thing around here. Um, you know, I'm, for a minute, I'm not going to stick to wrestling. I remember in 1988, opening day in Boston, and they, we have this new guy doing commentary for the Red Sox. And everyone was like, oh, my God, hey, he's really good. And that's how I got introduced to Sean McDonough. And I didn't even realized that I grew up reading his dad in the Boston Globe. A few years later, you know, I've gotten to know Sean very well over the years, and he was very, he was very young then. He was only like 26 when yeah. he got that job. And a few years later, I was lucky enough to get to ABC, and I was with Sean there. There were five guys doing college football this is 20 years ago now at ABC. And the five guys doing college football were, Sean, were Brad Nessler, Keith Jackson, Brent Musburger, Sean McDonough, and me. Or as I like to say back then, a veritable who's who and one who's that. Uh, but, you know, Sean is, you know, he's, I think in my particular avocation and I, you know, worship at the altar of a guy like Mike Emmerich, who I was fortunate enough to finally meet last year and have like my own little audience with him and things like that, who is the greatest hockey announcer ever. They're really, to me, obviously I have an affinity for the guys that can do the multiple sports. That to me is the true skill to be able to tell the story and do it at a high level in various sports. And Sean is really tough to beat. <laughs> when you consider all of the different sports he can do at a high level. I'll go even farther back with McDonough. I, he used to do the Hockey's Championship games, and he did the first one, which was BC Tears Providence. in my eyes, Dave. Providence, BC. Oh. Tears in my eyes, Dave. I'll, I'll tell you, it was the greatest game of any type I've ever seen. It, that game was spectacular. It was Terrific. It was. Chris Terreri played one of the freakishly great games and McDonough. He made a save that was so it was like three seconds later that McDonough called it. He's like, wait, wait, did he stop that? It was, it was, it was just one of the great, and he called, he must've been 23 at the time. And it was a great call. He started, his voice started to break at the end. It was incredible game. That's another, another New England thing. Obviously it's called, you know, I was, obviously I came up through college hockey. I owe everything. I don't get to ABC. I don't get to the NBA. I don't get anywhere without, you know, coming up through college hockey in the nineties. And Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I did the frozen four for a lot of years and I finally had to give that up because there's only so many things you can do, but I really, I I do miss it. I miss it a lot. A lot of those games, those old games have been on lately from my era, which isn't the eighties. It's really more the nineties is really more my era. The the main Paul Korea teams and the BU teams that went to the final four every year. And then eventually I ended up at BC in the late nineties and uh, all those teams. But yeah, it's, that's great nostalgia. It's the only thing left in the world of sports that is underappreciated and underhyped, in my view, is, is college hockey. Hey, Sean, do, please tell us about, like, you You grew up in New York, right? I did. Whereabouts? In, uh, in Midtown. My dad lived in Greenwich Village, and my mother still lives in the same apartment on 25th Street. So Madison Square Garden was about, uh, you know, equidistant from both those places, so. The four places I grew up were at my mom's house, my dad's house, Madison Square Garden, Shea Stadium. 
And uh, those are like the four, the four formative places of my life. I grew up a mile from Shea Stadium in Jackson Heights. It was amazing how easy it was to just get on the train and go see the Mets. I miss yeah. those days. Yeah, I was uh, unlucky in that it taught me a built character because the Mets of my childhood, when you first become a fan, and I'm sort of reliving that now, you know, with my son, but, you know, the Mets were terrible in my early childhood. And then you pay the, all those years, you put in all those years, and then, you know, we got the 80s Mets, and I'm staring at, it's so funny what I ended up doing and where I've ended up living for the last 20 years because I'm staring right now. You know, my Zoom shot, you got to set up your Zoom shot. It's the most important thing for a sportscaster these days is like oh, what yeah. your Zoom shot looks like. Yeah, <clears throat> which pictures are going to be in which whatever. But my ticket stub from the from game six in 86 is, you know, it's a little, little framed ticket Wait stub. Wait a minute. You went to that game yeah. too? I was at I that was game. I was there, I swear to God. I, I believe I was, and I, I, everybody says they did. I was staring at what was called Diamond Vision, the Jumbotron back then. I was staring right at it when they put the, Congratulations, Red Sox, 1986. Because I, I had Sunday, I was able to get tickets because I had Sunday tickets to the Mets. So because I was like the smallest, lowest level season ticket person, our family was because we had Sunday tickets. You had the option to buy tickets, and that's how I got to Game Two and Six of the World Series up in the upper deck. I got a great. I was in behind, sort of behind first base, so I can see to obviously close my eyes. We've seen the TV replay a million times, but I can see in real time. I can see the ball coming through Buckner. You know, because I'm in like short right field up in the upper deck and I can see the ball coming right through. All right. This is insane because I was behind first base. And quick story. uh, My friend says, "Okay, if you go up to that window and you say a code word, they give you tickets. I walk up to the window and I say plastic. And the guy's looking at me like I'm an idiot. I see my friends laughing at me. (laughs) But number two, we got out of there early. I did not see the Buckner play live. We got out of there early because my friend's from Natick, and he doesn't know New York, and he's like, they're going to burn our car if they see the Massachusetts plates. So I saw the Buckner error from this little tiny TV in, in the parking lot. So it's insane that we were both at that game. Huh. Yeah, after the whole yeah, that's, uh, home run, we ran. Yeah, I, remember, I don't think I moved for the 15 minutes between the home run, which is off, off Rick Aguilera, who later became a great closer. I don't think I moved until Mitchell scored the tying run. I remember just being devastated then, you know. Yeah, it wasn't devastating for you guys for too long. But I'll tell you, you grew up in New York. I mean, the the mecca of pro wrestling in the 70s and 80s. Like, how did you initially get hooked? How did you initially get interested? I was, whatever, eight years old. You know, I had older friends that kind of watched a little bit. And I remember being on at a time like you know, your your dad's late Saturday night. You know, that midnight show was on if you were up late. Or what I remember was asking my dad. And then you know, obviously we had t- you know TBS, so you had Saturday nights were you know phenomenal. I remember asking my dad, why does this Larry Zabisco guy want to fight the announcer? I don't understand like what's <laughs> happening here. And of course that became so that was the angle that sort of got me in at the same time it was. Tommy Rich and Austin Idol and Austin Idol came back in. Dave Lagan is a buddy of mine, you know, who's doing the NWA stuff. And he, they've been working with Austin Idol. And I get such a kick out of that because I can remember stuff from 40 years ago because he was like the heel of all heels, you know, he and, he and Zabisco. And then I just became this crazy eight, nine-year-old Bob Backlund fan. And every month was, you know, I, I probably went, I tried to go when the shows weren't on TV. They were on TV a lot on MSG network. And when they weren't on TV, I tried to go and you get to be there for a while. And you don't, it's like, well, you, you grow up where you grow up and you don't know any better. And you don't really realize until you get older that, wait, all the cool stuff is happening. Like if the title changes, if they're going to change the intercontinental title, they're going to change, they're going to do it at Madison square garden. And now with our adult looking back, you can see how, okay, Madison square garden is the big show. And they all drove to Allentown and did the TV and you get that now. But Back then, you just you didn't realize that. Oh my gosh! I just saw the Intercontinental Title. I saw. I was there for all of those. Don Morocco, Pedro Morales, oh. back and forth title changes. Even the one it was a non-TV one when Pedro won it the first time. We beat Cavatera. I was there for that. I think I said to somebody once recently. This is another New York wrestling thing. It's a little different, but there was a line in Thirty Rock where they asked for her ID, and Liz Lemon's like, "How's this for ID? I, I participated in Hands Across America. How's that for ID?" I do the same thing with 
I saw the AWA title change hands in person. Like, yeah, how's that I for being? How's that for being old? I was supposed to go. I no, I wasn't supposed to go to that show. I had my friends begging me to go to that show in in the Meadowlands, nineteen eighty five, and yep. I turned it down because no, I have to drive to Montreal the next day, and I'm being an old lady at twenty years old. Oh no, too much driving, huh? I can't believe you you live down the street from Madison Square Garden. That's incredible. Yeah, and I would I remember times that I and I love to collect through eBay. Years later, I was able to finish the collection, but they had very unique programs at Madison Square Garden. I think they were done yes. in Minnesota. I'm not, yeah, Norm Kites. I don't know why I know these names. Like I don't know where my car keys are, but I remember. I, can, <laughs> I, I literally this is this is true. I can run all of Bob Backlund's title defenses at Madison Square Garden in order. What for many, many years I've called a party trick for what I can only imagine would be the worst party ever thrown in the history of the world by anybody. But it's that sort of, you know, long-term memory that you have. But the pro- I remember going, I was close enough that I would go sometimes to buy the program, even if I wasn't going to the show. Like after school, you go buy the program and then go, and go home, even if you weren't going to the show, just to get it because they were hard to get at that time in the early 80s. But then, you know, I, I wasn't. I loved the wrestling of our childhood, you know, in the, the sort of the kayfabe territory era. That's what we grew up on, and we loved that. You know, we loved 1983 and 1982 and, and didn't like what, you know, what happened after that. I, I rebelled as a teenager. My rebellion is against, you know, Hulk Hogan, who took my guy's spot. So from 13 years old, I hated Hulk Hogan. And eventually at 16, rebellion was in the, um, you can see me in the, at the first SummerSlam. I'm along the barrier where the guys come out. So it's pretty easy to see me there. Like, but you can take screenshots too. I've seen people put screenshots up where you can see me and I'm wearing a national wrestling Alliance hat, <laughs> you know, which is my, that was my teenage rebellion against, you know, Vince and whatever in 19, 1988. I'm surprised they didn't remove you or give you a, yeah, WWF digitize it out. Cause that's, I mean, that was, the way people got free merchandise in the late 80s show up at a WWF show in NWA gear and they would give you WWF stuff to put over it. Right. I am looking at, I mean, you and I are like the same person. It's incredible. I'm looking at the history of professional wrestling Madison Square Garden book that I got in 2002. And I sat down with my girlfriend and she went over the dates in Madison Square Garden and I had to guess Backlund's opponent and I got 100 on this test. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, I'd feel pretty confident in that. If that, if I was on Millionaire, I would need no lifelines if those are the so questions. Backlund was your favorite wrestler growing up. Oh yeah. All right. And I even see- it's funny, even as an adult, even knowing everything we know now, and knowing everything we know about Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair, and and the greatest workers of all time and the greatest matches, I still get involuntarily defensive when you read criticism, even retroactively about, you know, your childhood hero at eight years old and nine years old. And, you know, it was obviously a different time then. And you watch those matches and they don't hold up. Although athletically there was, you know, there was some good stuff. I was, I'm a huge Don Morocco guy. And I think the Morocco backland matches were great. I mean, there's stuff I can, when you remember stuff and this is the name of the game, right? Like when you remember stuff from your childhood, like spots, I can remember a Backlund Morocco match a Sunday afternoon. I can tell you exactly. It was March. I could do the exact. I'm not going to do it because that's like that's a little, 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 yeah, yeah, 1983 exactly. Sunday afternoon. So, but I remember that match. They did the headlock for 10 minutes and made it entertaining. Where Morocco would try all these different things to escape, and Backlund would get it back. And you know, it was the first time. Later, I mean, 20 years later, I won't say it's commonplace to do like the back bridge and stand up in it into a reverse or whatever it is, you know, which is like Benoit would do it and whatever. Bob Ackland did that in 1983. Go back and watch, if you're hardcore enough that you're listening to this podcast, you're probably online, whatever. Go find this match and listen to the crowd when Backlund bridges up out of a, they did the same finish that Backlund and John Studd had done a couple of months earlier, where Backlund is in the backbreaker and he kicks off the turnbuckle and then backdrops Stud and lands on him for the three count. They did that exact spot in reverse where Backlund has him in the backbreaker. Morocco, because they couldn't think of anything else. Like, hey, we did this two months ago. Let's try it in reverse. <laughs> and Morocco lands on top of him, and Backlund bridges out of it. And the crowd gasps. 
And I love that. I love crowd reactions. I'm the, I'll watch the Y2J debut on Raw in 99 a million times because I love crowd reactions. And that, that's as good as it gets. The crowd gasps at this. Because back when we would do stuff, you couldn't, you know, he'd lift guys up out of, you know, arm bars and stuff like that. And stuff you didn't see at that time. And, you know. I, I miss the, the crowd reactions the way they used to be. I mean, I'm sure every guy our age misses Especially that. right now. I, I bet they all miss them. Sean, do you remember your first MSG show? Like it was yesterday. And we just passed the 40th anniversary of it is why I know. Because I think I tweeted a picture of the program. It was, it was the Bruno Zabisco match and Bob Backlund against Roman Reigns' dad. And yeah, a lot of guys, Pat Patterson, Andre was on that show and Pat Patterson and Kerry Von Erich was on that show. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. Kerry, they all came up during that time period, 79, 80, Austin Idol, Tommy Rich, all the Von Erichs, Steamboat and Youngblood. Kerry they Taylor. all came up for these one shot appearances. Um, but yeah, that was my, that was my first. And a couple of months later, it's funny what, what went for, Match of the year in 1980 versus now, but that was that back on Patera. I was there for that too. That was one of my first shows. Larry's Visceral Battle you, Royal. Since I have gushed about this version of Don Morocco on many occasions here, I'll let someone else do it. What did you, when you first saw Don, what kind of got you into him as a heel? Because again, that was not standard in New York rooting for the heels, but Don was so cool. Well, I, he was. And I, I think this, what I would use, the gauge for my 10 year old self would be. Was I afraid that this guy could beat Backlund? That was probably the gauge for who was really good, right? Like, mm-hmm. that was a real, you weren't really that nervous. I, I think as an eight year old kid, I, I thought that Sika the Samoan was going to kill him in the match. <laughs> like, I didn't under, it was, you know, you're terrified as a child. But it was more like that intellectual thing where I think we all had kayfabe beneath the surface, but we wanted to believe what we wanted to believe, but it, we, you just felt instinctively there were certain guys that could beat him like Greg Valentine or, you know, when they did that crazy angle, what Valentine Morocco. And I remember a thing of such, this is how you learn psychology. I was very lucky enough years later, because, you know, obviously I've met some people and people who are on Twitter know I've got a couple of fairly high profile friends in the business. And yes, Mick Foley did a reading at my wedding. That's all true. That really happened. Uh, but that in back then in in the in eighty two and eighty three you were just looking at guys that were dangerous and that you had this feeling beneath the surface that oh, this guy isn't really going to win he's not really going to beat Bob Backlund but Morocco this is what I was saying is I was lucky enough to have to have dinner Jim Ross was in town was a friend of mine he brought Pat Patterson along to dinner and you want to talk about a master's class right that I got oh, yeah. for two hours just listening to Pat Patterson and asking him questions but. Pat Patterson would put over this thing Morocco would do with the Intercontinental title. And he'd walk out so cool with it, and he'd just throw the belt around. I don't know if you remember this. He would throw oh, the yeah. belt in the ring. Right. And, but the psychology was, and Pat Patterson would put it over so perfectly, right, that that's, he loves that more than anything in the world. He's just making it seem like he doesn't care about it. But that's his identity and whatever. And just the guys, you appreciate if you are a certain person, it's the way I am about the way I broadcast games and how I feel about play-by-play. If you are meticulous in detail, but nobody's ever been better than Shawn Michaels at this stuff. You know, a, he does something in the third minute of a 30-minute match that means something later, yep. right? Everything has a purpose, and Morocco is very much, was very much that way. I've got to ask you, were you at Madison Square Garden when they held up the title between Backlund and Valentine in 81. No, but I went the next month when he got it back. Okay. I had a brief, I had a brief period. I'll admit this here publicly for the first time. When I was eight, nine years old, I got a little too nervous sometimes to go. So when he would look, like I remember being terrified of Hulk Hogan. It's a long story. I, great shame in my life. I missed the Shea Stadium show in 1980 because right before I was about to go away to camp, they were announcing the Hulk Hogan match. And I literally turned the TV off because I knew I was going to camp for the next month. And I didn't want to spend the entire month at camp worried that Backlund was going to have to wrestle Hulk Hogan. So this is a true story. I literally turned the TV off and didn't find out till later that he was actually wrestling Andre and that I could have seen Backlund win the tag team title and whatever. But oh, man. it's a lesson. I know it's a hard lesson. You got to learn them at eight, nine years old that, you know, you got to, you got to face your fears. I guess is what I learned, what I learned back then. 
I, no, I went the next the next month, by the way, I went the next month with the quote unquote held up title back and won that match. And there was also that was the title change. That was Morales beating Morocco mm-hmm. to regain the Intercontinental title that night. Yeah, that really bloody Texas death match they had. That was a good I wanted match. to ask you, um, did you see any of those matches live, Sean? The uh, Morocco-Morales matches? We've talked about those yeah, before that. and how intense the crowd was because because everyone hated Dawn and loved uh, Pedro. Uh, one of those title changes was, like I think it was in Philadelphia or somewhere else, but the two at Madison Square Garden, I was there for those um, both. In November 81, Morocco losing and then Morocco getting it back. That backland stud match I mentioned, the semifinal was, or whatever you call them, back in those days, was Morocco beating Morales for the... Uh, and I guess, obviously, I wasn't those years away from coming to Boston, but then when Morocco lost it, that was in Boston. And, uh, yeah, and I was, I was lucky enough to be at that, and I, I yeah. didn't believe the title was really changing hands because the titles didn't change hands in Boston, so I had the opposite of what you had. But I'm curious right. about this. You were at the November 81 show. Yep. What was the crowd's reaction to that whole angle where Backlund, you know, sort of lost the title to Valentine. They went crazy. When Backlund won the match, it was bigger than him winning a regular match. I remember it being really loud. Like, here's the thing. History says, if you ask people to paint, like, a thin brush of the history, they'll say, Backlund was, he didn't draw that well, and he wasn't that popular, and by 82, Snookhead bypassed him, and they were booing him. They booed him in Philadelphia, and they, they may have booed him here. I, you guys may know better. They may have booed him up here. He was never booed in New York. He back when it was over in New York. Like you watch it. I'm not, this is an adult talking. Like going back to watch it. Back when it was over. It wasn't Bruno, and it wasn't you know Bruno against Billy Graham and Dusty Rhodes. But back when it was over, pretty big in New York. And he when he won that, when he beat Valentine it, it, to theoretically win the title back, place went crazy. Yeah, went I, crazy. I, Starting in 82, like things started to crack a little bit for Backlund in Boston. And they had a match in October 83 against Mass Superstar where both Backlund and Skoland were taken out on a stretcher and the crowd went nuts cheering over it. So it, interesting because they, they did that same finish in New York. They did yes. the same finish in New York and it was different. This was when he did the neck breaker on the floor. Yep. Neck breaker on the floor. Yeah, same. How dare they do the same thing in Boston they did in New York? This is how I like to always tell people when I get to the night that when you decided to go to Montreal instead, when Stan Hansen won the title, earlier that night, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes had worked in the middle of the show, and Dusty throws him over the top. The ref bump, Dusty throws him over the top, suplexes him back in and pins him, and then they reverse the finish later. I don't think they had done that anywhere else ever. It's probably the only time that... <laughs> They, they did the same stuff, almost exactly the same stuff in Boston that they did in New York. Like the, the same yeah. finish for the Snook and Morocco cage match. Yeah, which was a great, you know, nobody could see that. That's what made that a great finish. Because um, <laughs> nobody knew, nobody could see how they were going to get out of that. I used to get the old WOR show on cable. And I remember Captain Lowell Bano flat out saying that Snook, I mean, it, it, it was wasn't even hinting around. He was telling you, Snook is going to jump off the top of the cage onto Backland, or at least he's going to try to. You guys better come out and see this. Yeah. Yeah, and that was obviously the Morocco one where he had to deliver that and had to figure out a way to do that, but he had already lost the match when he did it. But yeah, in 82, yeah, Snook was, that was kind of the scary one. They Backland stretched out in a lot of cities, I think, in the first meeting to build that up, and they did three. That was always the the draw of a guy was how many how many title shots he got at the Garden. Snooker got three. But even then, I mean, that's June of 82. People weren't cheering Snooker. They were cheering back on, in New York, like, through that feud. Remember, the other thing is that it would happen in New York first. So yep. you had that three- or four-month lag, and that was a big, you know, that was a big lag by the time they got to the fall of 82, and you had to turn Snooker. You know, when you get to Philadelphia in September of 82, of course people are going to be cheering yeah, exactly. a little bit. I mean, it's a, it's a forerunner of one of the craziest time periods in the Attitude Era where Nitro and Raw had to sort of go, were going, doing, trying to do their show in sequential order, yet they were going to different places where different guys were being cheered and booed, which was always, you know, that, that was really something to me when they had to do that. And you never know. Nitro would be in North Carolina one week and the Horsemen got cheered and the NWO would get booed. Then they come to Boston the week after and Hogan and the NWO would get this huge baby face pop. And it's interesting to do a show around that. 
it, it's difficult to do a show around that. You know, you're right about Backlund. I recently, for the first time, saw a match from April 1984 where Backlund wrestled Valentine. Valentine. It was in the main event. Yep. And yeah, Hogan, Hogan missed shows. That, that, that was unprecedented. Yeah, they were happy to see Backlund. And Backlund got a big pop when he came back for Pro Wrestling USA the following year. You know, he came back and worked a couple of matches, you know, at the Meadowlands, and he was always over, you know, in New York. But yeah, that was, unpro- we didn't, we couldn't comprehend of Hogan not being there. It didn't make any, that was brand new. To, uh, like there had always been for 20 years before that, between Bruno and Backlund and Morales, there had always been a championship match at the top. We didn't know it was the start of, hey, Hogan doesn't work every month in every city. We didn't know that was the way it was going to be. We experienced the same thing in Boston. They announced, you know, Sergeant Slaughter versus the Iron Sheik was the top match, and there was no WWF title match. And we're kind of looking at each other on the way out saying, okay, did they forget to tell us who Hogan yeah. was fighting? But, yeah, know, but they had, a, they had to punish us with the Ricky Steamboat-Don Morocco match, so I'll live. <laughs> there you go. No, you, I mean, talk about opposite reaction. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was April 1984. We had Bob Backlund against Paul Orndorff in the main event in Boston. Now, the New York Backlund Valentine match was really good. This Backlund Orndorff match was an absolute stinker. I don't know what happened. And Backlund got booed out of the building. It was just way different in Boston than New York. Yeah, and he had a good match. It's funny. I never remember seeing working with Orndorff, though. I thought they might have crossed paths like in the early, early Backlund days, like before he was champion, like in Florida or whatever. But yeah, but some guys had great, you know, Morocco, Valentine. Even Iron Sheik, they had a good, was a fun match online, like in '79, before I even was a fan. That I remember watching later with Backlund and, and Iron Sheik in Madison Square Garden after he won the, he won a battle royal or whatever to to get the title shot. But he had, you know, he clicked with certain guys, and you know, the cartoony style just didn't work with. It wasn't going to work with everybody. But you know, Valentine, you put him in with a great worker, and he could have really good matches. Patera was another guy he had good matches with. You know, Backlund, the one exception, and I think you were at this match, I recently got to see the Bob Backlund versus Harley Race match from September 1980. Yeah, 1980, yeah. And I didn't think that was a good match at all. Yeah, it wasn't. Well, it didn't Yeah, it didn't work for whatever reason. And it's funny because I, that, that was the early Backlund projection was that he was, you know, he was on that short list to replace Race, you know, to be the next guy after Harley Race, you know, in the NWA. Yeah, and it's rare to see a Harley race match that was not good. But, uh, I, yeah, they hadn't obviously worked together. I think what happened, I'm theorizing here, is, is both guys really had their guard up, and they weren't yep. going to let either one double-cross the other one. Isn't that crazy to say now? Yes. I mean, but that's the way – I mean, think about what we're saying. But, yeah, that's the way it was. And here's – and they, by the way, and this is the trigger to the backward what, what, – something that you subtract from backward matches that impossible – to have these great matches is that because Backlund was instilled with this paranoia, you got, you probably know what I'm about to say. He always kicked out at one. Watch a Backlund match. He kicks out at one. So there's very few near falls in Backlund matches. He never stayed down for two just because, you know, he had the, the Inoki thing and what was a double cross and what's not, but he always had his guard up that way. And he always kicked out at one, which when you think of these great moments, I just saw, uh, one of the great things going on now is uh, Steve Austin doing that broken skull thing, doing those long form interviews. And he's so good at that, at those interviews. And the Bret Hart one, they talk about their submission match, which obviously became one of the greatest matches ever, but that they both hated them. And that you say that and you're like, oh yeah, they hate submissions because they don't have them. But then you start thinking it through the way Bret Hart thinks through matches. And you realize one thing you lose in a submission match, you're near falls. Yes. And you never, you never had one in a backland you know, back in the match, because he was always, he always had that same referee, John Stanley or whatever, and you'd think, hmm. you get over the paranoia. But if you watch a back in the match, you're going to see very few two counts. Yeah, I wonder if that's a it. bug that Skolin put in his ear. Maybe. Hmm. I mean, that's, that, that would be a question. It's funny, I did, I got to meet him uh, at a SummerSlam. I got like that standard Backlund uh, pose, you know, with the headlock, whatever, which was, which was kind of a kick. It was right when the book was coming out, when he was sort of doing the, doing the book tour. He, yeah, it's a, a, we didn't have like a, that long conversation, but that's always a question is why he never stayed down for two. Because that, that really, you can imagine the drama, what that takes away. 
Like, he, he would get in bad spots because he would take a beating, and he'd usually take the finisher from the other guy. But Sean he would Grant, rarely, you think? Oops, I'm sorry. Go ahead. He would rarely stay down for two. <laughs> I, I know you have another commitment, and I know you need to go. I really want to thank you for taking the, the time to be on the show. You've been an outstanding guest. Anything for you guys. You know that. It's always fun <laughs> down this, this long road down memory lane. Uh, I'll tell you what. Be careful what you say. You might be back next week or something. Well, you got. Hey, if there's ever a time, <laughs> if there's ever a time to do it. It's now. We're all catching up on all the stuff we. Uh, yeah, we always say we do if we had time in our hands, and we got time in our hands. And uh, yeah, hopefully, really Max well, and I have... I'll be back with uh, all you guys soon. And I remain somewhat optimistic that we're going to find a way to finish the season. And I think the NBA schedule is going to change, maybe forever. Uh, starting next year, there's going to be a lot of changes, but this too will pass. I certainly hope so. Sean, thank you again. I know you've got to go. I hope you can come on at another time. And like I said, thank you very much. You got it, guys. That was Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics. What an excellent guest. I apologize to our listeners if we didn't 100% stick to wrestling. We're out there talking about baseball and basketball, but whatever. You cannot possibly have the broadcast partner of the great Cedric Maxwell and me not acknowledge that. Cannot happen. No, Cedric Maxwell, who used to be like, he was like a hockey enforcer in a basketball uniform back in the day. Jumping in the lane with the hand on the throat to magic right before the free throw in 84. Oh, the guy was <laughs> magnificent. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was a great segment. Very happy with it. Uh, we were talking about a couple of the Madison Square Garden shows that Sean Grandy had attended. So let's talk about one of them. New York's Madison Square Garden, September 22nd, 1980, drawing over 20,000 spectators. And in a way, I am a little bit surprised that this show drew as well as it did. And I'll tell you why when we get to that fork in the road. Show starts off with the NWA Junior Heavyweight Champion, Les Thornton, Pinning Jose Estrada, it is Les Thornton's, I believe, it's his Madison Square Garden debut, I was about to say, and I think his only appearance, but no, he was a regular in the WWF starting in 1985. Sean, I think this is one reason why the junior heavyweight title did not get over in New York. I am a Jose Estrada fan. I thought he was a great worker. Obviously, he's he was a big part of my life growing up, uh, watching him every Saturday on TV, but he never won. He should not be getting the shot at a traveling title. There are people here that I'd feel better about giving this match to. But the NWA was like that, too. Whenever this belt, where was it? The main booking was this, this in uh, Tri-States? Uh, for certain, Not at this point. I don't believe so, because Thornton was kind of a regular Florida guy. So oh, it yeah. may have been Eddie Graham uh, in charge of the junior. But for a long title. time, it was Leroy McGark who did it. Right. And like in his territories, that belt will get taken care of. Same thing with the light heavyweight title in Mexico, which is a big deal in Mexico. But second, it leaves Mexico. It's not a big deal at all. Say It depends on where it is. And I, I could see that. Why would they bother putting this over? Because they're not going to come back. When, when did you ever see the junior heavyweight championship before this? I'm, I'm guessing they just wanted to bring in less. Uh, well, no, actually, well, they did just want to bring in less, but they brought in, here's what they did, and this is crazy. They introduced none other than Jose Estrada as the WWF Junior Heavyweight Champion. So right there, it's titled not to be taken seriously. One in Puerto and they, Rico. Uh, and then they brought in Tatsumi Fujinami to win the title from Jose Estrada, and they kind of made a little bit of a big deal out of Tatsumi Fujinami, but they kept putting him in there with jobbers. Wasn't that one of those belts that turned into the Triple Crown? Oh, I remember that belt, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was like one thing. of those like seven belts they had all combined in. But yeah, I, I don't really blame them for this because I mean they're not going to, why should they? Sometimes if it's their belt and they're not taking it seriously, I'll get mad. If this was the WWF Junior Heavyweight, it's the NWA Junior Heavyweight Champion. Did, did it, was this ever defended since then at MSG? No, I don't believe so. I think this was the last junior heavyweight title match until they started bringing in Sayama. And as you were saying, it gives some legitimacy. This is, I'll tell you why they did this, is that this gives some legitimacy. So when he gets the junior heavyweight championship, then they can give it to, you know, and that's what they wanted to do to make that connection with Japan. 
with the belt. I, I mean, maybe. I mean, I think they would have been better off bringing in some guy that we've never heard of. And, oh, he's one of the top junior heavyweights in the world, as opposed to bringing in Jose Estrada. Again, nothing against Estrada, but, I mean, he was a guy who lost They didn't care about TV. the belt. I don't think they cared about the belt. They cared about the contact. So they're not going to kill themselves getting the belt over. They just need to get it enough over to, you know, to, to, to make nice. Um, coming up next, Pat Patterson gets Johnny Rods. Gee, Pat's awful low in the card. Yeah, I think this, this totally looks like just a match put in there to fill the card, to take up time. Um, and, you know, it might have been a good match. I don't know. I mean, two good workers. I am not going to run out the Bruce Provence joke again, so you're welcome. We have the Hangman against Dominic DiNucci. Who's the Hangman again here? Um. Well, let me think. I, I know his name. I, can't, I just can't I've think called him it. Bruce Provence so many times, I actually convinced myself that's the guy. Um, Neil Gwai. Neil Gwai, yeah. So that's, uh, and uh, Larry's, uh, the, what, what happened here? Larry's a Bisco against Tony Gurria. Well, hold on. Before you, you jump to the Tony Gurria match, um, Hangman was originally managed by Fred Blassie when he first came into the WWF. But he was quickly, you could tell he was one of those guys that was on like a Torquemada level. He's not getting the big match against Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden. But they did have Bob Backlund defend against this guy at the Boston Garden, which was right before I started going. And I'm glad if there was a show I had to miss. It was that one. That was way more interesting I had in that match. Uh, <laughs> God bless. Uh, Larry Zabesco and, and Tony d- defeats Tony Gurria. Trouble in paradise. Yes. What happened was on TV the day of the Shea Stadium show, which was August 9th, they were doing an angle where Tony Gurria, Larry Zabisco's longtime friend and tag team partner, was in the audience and he would come down when Larry Zabisco was doing an interview and try to talk to his old pal and Larry Zabisco would just walk off. And I want to say he did this twice before they ran the angle, the day of the Shea stadium show where, you know, Tony Gurria once again, tried to talk to his old pal, Larry, Larry, I just want to talk. And Zabisco turned around and suckered him and beat the crap out of him and tore off his shirt. And Bruno, who was doing commentary, comes out to help Tony Gurria and you know Tony takes the mic I want you tonight to break every damn bone in his body and that's the backdrop for this match Goodness, wow it's getting intense Madison but. Square Garden return after an 18 month absence the saddest 18 months of Sean Goodwin's life he was actually there he just didn't get on any of the cards <laughs> I'm kidding uh Rick Martel defeated now okay this is interesting Martel and McGraw, I don't remember this match. This seems like it could either be really pretty good or just terrible. Rick, well, it, it depends. I mean, it's, it's the WWF, you never know. Rick Martel was an outstanding worker. I think he's tremendous. Even people who say, you know, oh, he was a really good worker. No, he was better than that. Um, mm. And I'm thinking if it's his Madison Square Garden debut, he's probably fired up to, to go out there and have. A good match, even though it's a babyface match, and babyface matches, it's hard to have a good match sometimes. I'm not worried about Martel. <laughs> if memory it, serves, McGraw could either be pretty good or not pretty good. He was usually good, and this was, I'd like to think, this was before mm-hmm. his personal problems started really bringing him down. I can close my eyes and without even watching it, picture what the next match was like. Pedro Morales defeated Offa. What an odd card. Yeah, they would sometimes almost, looking like on purpose, feed the Intercontinental Champion like really weak challengers if they thought they had a strong main event. And here we are with this match. I mean, Morales and Backlund had just beaten the Samoans for the titles a month before in Shea Stadium. And then coming up, and to go to the point you were talking about before, uh, next up, Patera, uh, Rene Goulet. Now, I understand Rene Goulet had, a, um, had runs in other territories, or he was somewhat legitimate in the WWF in the 70s. At no point in my fandom in the 80s in WWF do I ever remember Rene Goulet being a legitimate contender for any title. No, he was strictly a mid-card type. I think by this point, he was already doing jobs on TV and tag team matches. 
nothing against Rene Goulet. I think he he passed away recently, so he's not going to hear this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was one of the most boring wrestlers I can remember. Well, Rene is 50 here. I mean, so, I mean, he'd been around since like the early 60s, late 50s or something like that. So, yeah, I'm not getting on him, but I'm just saying this is, I don't, and it's 104. So, I'm assuming um, Mr. Goulet got the uh, little express trip from the ambulance out. This was, it says it was televised on Madison Square Garden, but I, oh, you know what? I do have this show on DVD, so. I just don't remember what happened. I am sorry. But yeah, I, it, once again, just kind of a, a filler match for the Intercontinental Champion, who I called Pedro Morales that before he hadn't won it yet, obviously. WWF Champion Bob Backlund defeated NWA Champion Harley Race by disqualification at 35-14. This was, in my opinion, as I, I mentioned before, just an absolutely terrible match. Uh, yeah, it's not a good match. I know you gents were talking about the being on their guard. I just thought it was a style issue. Um, they're very similar. They both have a slowish, methodical kind of, you know, it'd be like watching Harley with like Dory Jr. or something. You need almost like a counter to that a little bit. If you have someone like Morocco or something like that who has a more color, and then you have Bob to add the legitimacy to it. That's what Harley did. If you have two guys who are completely legitimate, I don't know. I just think that's the issue is the fact that you're looking at guys with very similar realistic styles. Maybe. I mean, and again, I was very surprised that this show drew and I'll tell you why. In my opinion, they did not put Harley Race on television enough. Now, he had a couple of matches on TV in 1979, wrestled at Madison Square Garden a couple of times. He actually beat Dusty Rhodes uh, back December 1979 but coming into this event they should have had they should have given him a major win on tv and why not have him on the shea stadium show a month before defending the nwa title against a big name and i'm not talking tony Gurria, steve travis i mean i don't know who maybe tony atlas but you know get him out there against a big name and have him get a clean win so he's got exposure, and he looks like a guy you know, that can challenge Backlund. Because Vincent J. liked the NWA every bit as much as Vincent K. liked the NWA. I've always wondered what negotiations for these were like. Because you know what? That's why it's a bad match. Because both of these guys are just unwilling to give anything because both have the, each other's promoters in their ear. Sam and um, Barnett for a race and Vince uh, Elder for Bob sitting there saying, do not let him make you look like a chump. So you're not even just looking at you can't have a definitive pinfall or a winner. You really can't have like that kind of give and take in those dramatic moments because nobody wants to look weak because it's two separate organizations. And this is why every time you brought the NWA champ into New York, all these matches were garbage. If you went down to Florida, they weren't that bad. No. And I mean, you know, and that's that's the thing. This is not the first time Backlund and Harley Race have wrestled the night after. Backlund won the title from superstar Billy Graham. He flew down to Jacksonville and wrestled Harley Race. There was a couple of other matches, and I know they had a St. Louis match right around this time, which Race won on a DQ. And I always figured that was like the give and take that Race wins in St. Louis, albeit by disqualification. Backlund wins in New York, albeit by disqualification. Whenever you see these matches come up to New York, it's like, and you see them with Les Thornton. They are not giving the NWA anything. That's why, you, again, you never saw the champ come in, like San Francisco or like Bill Watts, because they didn't want to pay. Oh, that's an interesting one. Did they actually have to pay Harley the 10% for this show? Oh, I seriously doubt it. I don't <laughs> think they paid Race 10% anyway. I think Race was getting 8%. Oh, it's okay, say 8 Was he getting 8 for this? I seriously doubt it. You know what? I mean, whatever percentage he got at Madison Square Garden was probably better than whatever he got in, in Des Moines or wherever. I'm trying to remember, how did they address the championship when they were announced? Like, was it, was there a, because I remember with the aftermaths, they always went out of the way to make sure they took the world championship out of the WWF title. It was always the WWF champion. It wasn't the WWF world champion. There was only one of those, and that was the NWA. That started in 83 when Vince McMahon Jr. kicked Aptor out of Madison Square Garden and tried to start his own magazine. But Back during this time, 
the after mags recognized three titles as legitimate world titles the wwf nwa and awa and they kind of put them all on equal footing what would like i don't know if you'd even know this but would like negotiation go i mean was it complicated to have these two because it happened what three times i think where you had the wwf champion against somebody else how much conflict was there how much difficulty was getting something like this together probably not a lot because I mean, it, it looks pretty cut and dry to me. Anytime Backlund wrestled, or anytime you had a an NWA versus, uh, you had a unification match. You had superstar Billy Graham versus Harley Race, which ended in a draw. Uh, you had Bob Backlund and Nick Bockwinkle in 79 in Toronto that ended in a draw. Usually, they ended exa- exactly like that, a time limit draw. And this one was just like, okay, Race goes over in St. Louis, Backlund goes over in New York. Unification matches are like scaffold matches. On paper, they look delightful. Mm-hmm. But once you actually have to do the match, it's terrible. I cannot remember one unification match. I th- Again, that, there were a couple in Florida that weren't bad. But I can't remember any of them in New York that were any good because they just were not going to give the NWA champion enough to make it a compelling match. Yeah, I think this was the only match in the WWF territory that they did as a unification. But let me go a little bit sidetrack here. One thing about our Stick to Wrestling Facebook group that's pretty cool is on Sundays, since we're all locked in, we do group watches. And, you know, everyone listening to this is invited to join and do a group watch with us uh, Sunday at 6 Eastern time. This week, we're doing a five-star match. Uh, Ric Flair versus Barry Windham from Worldwide Wrestling early 1987. This, This match was flawless. Last week, we did a Super Towns on the Superstation from early 1987. And I was just in awe of the stupidity of showing a Midnight Express versus Road Warriors scaffold match. I think it was from, I don't know, it wasn't, I think it was from St. Louis. I don't know where it was from, but it was different from the Starcade match. And number one, you're out there trying to sell a videotape of Starcade 86, and now you're giving away the same match on free TV. But wait, you're exposing how bad a scaffold match is. That's crazy. Well, uh, there's a couple ways to look at this. It's either, you know, you're, you're either going to get exposed before you buy the tape or after. And I guess if you're buying the tape to see this awesome scaffold match, and you end up watching that garbage. I can see where you may be a little mad. So it may not be that bad to, you know, give that back. You still had enough on that card. I just, that match was, oh, God, I hate that match. It was just terrible. There was no point to it. And you're you're asking for an injury. It's just one of those matches. Again, you just I don't. And they keep doing it because again, it looks good on the advertisement, and, and people go to see it, and it's terrible. It's a, another one is barbed wire matches. You have to hide this thing basically, you know, to try to get people to buy tickets for it. And now, like you were saying about the videotape, okay? I don't know how many people bought that videotape. You know, ten thousand, thirty thousand. I have no idea. But you're only exposing it to that small audience. You're showing this thing to a million people now. And you're just totally giving the whole thing away. It's nuts. I just like how they keep going to the well on these types of matches. That's the maddening part of it. They never turn out well. Well, the scaffold match, unless Billy Dundee's involved. All right, one last thing on scaffold matches, right? At Starcade, you're kind of advertising it as this once-in-a-lifetime, totally dangerous thing. Now you're exposing on TV that there's more than one and probably more than two. And how can these guys do a scaffold match every single night? Oh, and by the way, here's the finish where Bobby Eaton dangles halfway down the thing and then he drops, you know, the other half of the way. Still dangerous, but not as dangerous as the image in your mind of one of the road warriors just throwing Bobby Eaton off this thing. Oh, exactly. I mean, the first one they did was Jared. It's on tape, too is Jared against Don Green. And the thing that jumped out was two things. One was that the scaffold wasn't as high. But the other thing was that it was like a death match. So you would go off the scaffold, and then you'd go right back up again. And basically, you'd keep falling until someone couldn't get up again. The concept was vicious, but it was probably, I, I don't know if anyone got hurt, it was probably safer because the scaffold actually was lower, but the concept of it was more vicious. I think that would be a more effective match if you have to do it. No, I I understand what you're saying, and you're right. Just one last thing about scaffolds. If you guys want to see something crazy, they had a scaffold match at the Texas Stadium show in 1987. 
I don't know if this is available on YouTube or what, but you should see how goddamn high this scaffold was. I mean, it made Starcade look like nothing. But anyway, when whenever a match plays to a spot, it's going to be a bad match. Excellent point. I agree with you. Tony Atlas pinned Samoan Sika at 532 with an elbow drop. Tony Atlas was over like crazy in the WWF. This feels, again, this goes into my theory about that they booked themselves into a corner with the Samoans by having them wipe out the tag division. So then they had to have them lose the belts to these two. Now you have two more losses as single competitions to these two. Two more quick losses, by the way. One three thirty four, and the other file five minutes is a long time for a Samoan match. This feels like it's kind of feeding into that. We want them to be strong, but we're demystifying them a little bit by having some of our top singles beat them. Yeah, they had been around since like December 1979. So their run in the W, I mean, they've already had a long run and it's pretty close to being over. I mean, having the Samoans win that tournament to get the titles back, I thought was the craziest, one of the craziest things ever. But whatever, if, dude, if they did it. Out of context, it makes no sense. I still think they did it because they basically put themselves into a corner and they had them wipe out everybody. So by having them lose to the two top guys, at least they give them a loss. They show they're beatable without being too beatable. Yeah, I mean, you could tell some guys in the WWF were protected, like Pedro Morales, like Tony Atlas. And they just wanted to give them a, an opponent who could do a job and people wouldn't think too much of it. And finally, the last match on the show, Andre the Giant pins Hulk Hogan at 12-18 when Hogan fails a slam attempt and Gorilla Monsoon makes a fast count. Special guest referee Gorilla Monsoon. And then, yeah, Hogan attacked. It doesn't say this here, but Hogan attacked monsoon after the match creating interest for hulk hogan versus gorilla monsoon next month where monsoon really let hogan i mean monsoon really protected himself and he had a big ego but he put hogan over over strong the next month there's no reason to be putting gorilla monsoon in with hogan if you're not going to do that yeah see, i, I mean, just even when you mentioned it, i was like oh god why but a year later, not maybe like June, I want to say, 1981, they did an angle, which was one of the greatest angles ever, where Pat Patterson tried to get out of Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Clutch. And first, Dominic DiNucci, Tony Gurria, and Rick Martell are all trying to get Slaughter off of Patterson, and they can't do it. Then Monsoon comes in, and he literally starts throwing Slaughter around. It was crazy. It's, Yeah. I just, I don't understand. Like, what is Monsoon's Bons- 45 here? I mean, he should not be in like a major event unless you're, you're getting, who are their plans with Hogan here anyway? Because the booking is just weird with him. You want to keep him strong, but he ended up leaving. Was he always kind of a, did Vince Elder look at him as a featured attraction all along, just like an Abdullah the Butcher kind of guy? Or did he see something that Vincent K saw too, or would see? Ah, uh, I mean, he was, Hogan at this point was, believe it or not, he could have some really good matches. He had two, like, four-star matches in Philadelphia against Bob Backlund. I mean, really good. But he was still a little bit green and, and still trying to figure out the business. But Hogan-Andre was a big deal of a match. I mean, in 1980, they brought that match to the Superdome, and they brought it to the Omni. I, I, those are the only places I know of, but still... Having Hogan Andre like hit the highway like that was a big deal. When was it coming to people's attention? Because Dave has always said that, Dave Meltzer said that when expansion came, Hogan was the guy at that point. So that means that he was always considered the uh, one of the top guys as, you know, as he was chasing Nick Bockwinkle. At what point was it becoming known in the industry that, okay, this is the next big baby face right now? Not just the guy who's going to come into town, but like the guy. It happened quite by accident. After this run in the WWF, this is Hogan's version of it, which you know what that means. It might not be totally true, but I understand some of it's true. Vince Sr. told him, okay, you are now going to have a run in the Carolinas for Jim Crockett. But Hogan had gotten the offer to do Rocky III, and he wanted to do that. And supposedly that created a major rift between Hogan and Crockett and Hogan and Vince Sr., but it was the smart thing for Hogan to do, and it was the best thing for the wrestling business for Hogan to do. Hogan comes back, starts wrestling in the AWA like late 1983, uh, 81, excuse me, 
They bring him in and bring Johnny Valiant in as his manager. This was more like early 82. Sorry, everyone. And the fans just ate Hogan up. He came in as a heel, and there was no way they could run him as a heel. And by the time they finally turned him, I remember this. Vern Gagne once said that there's no way you can have a baby face as big as Hulk Hogan as your champion. Because fans are just not going to buy the smaller heels as threats to Hulk Hogan. Like, I thought Greg Valentine really had a chance to beat Bob Backlund for the title. I never thought Greg Valentine could beat Hogan. I never thought Morocco could beat Hogan. I never thought Patera could beat Hogan because Hogan's too big. But guess what? It didn't matter because people just wanted to see Hulk Hogan beat the guys up. Now, what's ironic about the Vern Gagne quote? He didn't say that in 1983. He said it in 1987 after WrestleMania 3 had already happened. Like, no, this isn't going to work. It's been working for three years. So they had no plans for him here. I don't think they had any any real plans for him. Uh, they did a feud with Tony Atlas at the beginning of 1981, and that was kind of Hogan's swan song in the WWF for this run, but Anyway, we have run out of time. The hour always goes by so quickly. Sean, thank you for everything. And I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Be well, everyone.